Welcome to Unfrozen. I'm your co-host, Greg Lindsay. And I'm Dan Safarik, and today our guest is John Lisak. John Lisak is an architect and principal with Page and Turnbull in Los Angeles, who has specialized in the preservation, rehabilitation, repair, and reuse of historic structures since 1993. He possesses an interdisciplinary education in architecture, engineering, material science, and is active locally and nationally. His work includes the adaptation of historic modern office buildings, 1970s concrete structures, and a 1960s library into the Cheech, a museum for Chicano art in Riverside, California that opened last year, and whose adaptive reuse offset atmospheric emissions of 14,062 metric tons of embodied carbon dioxide as compared to constructing a new museum of the same scope. Congratulations on that, John. Welcome. No, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Excited. Yeah, so we're, uh, we're excited to have you. Um, I guess the first question I would want to ask would be what what sort of motivates your interest in historic preservation as a, as your your main focus of practice. I th- it's really uh, the study of change over time. I'm just fascinated by how uh, buildings and the built environment um, evolve and re-evolve depending on um, you know who's in charge of them and what the uses are. So it's this. Uh, constant uh, evolution of place it, it it seems to me from your your track record that you have a soft spot for concrete uh considered public enemy number one in terms of embodied carbon emissions so how can this ever useful and ubiquitous material redeem itself in the public eye yeah, I, I think that's the case and we're retrofitting a lot of particularly here in Los Angeles there's a um, a uh, what they call a, a non-ductile concrete retrofit ordinance that's in place. So how do we um, take a look at you know concrete construction up to the 1970s? So basically, the steel reinforcement connections aren't quite right for earthquakes. So how can we adapt the buildings in a way that you know has the least kind of carbon carbon investment? in the adaptation project. And sometimes, you know, the best thing to do is to use a little bit more concrete, but now there's other um, options. There's carbon fiber wrapping and there's kind of steel. Steel's not a great one either. Um, But I think, you know, one of the things is that I do have this material science background and there's, you know, there's kind of these materials that do certain things that nothing else does. And a lot of them are not the best for humans so we have to think about how what role they may have in in um, construction and how can we kind of mitigate those 
damages. And plastics is a great example of that. And I think these forever chemicals and plastics is um, a challenge, but they're there, right? We have them. Um, we've made them. We're not going to necessarily get rid of all the what are polyfluorinated um, alkalids that go into the that go into the manufacture of plastics. So since we've made that investment, um, how can we use them and figure out a way so that the those PF, PFASs uh, don't spread further? But um, you know, it's already happened. And we you know we look at like lead and asbestos are kind of mercury those are all like magic materials they do things that nothing else does and concrete's the same way that the idea of a lime cycle right where you can take limestone and heat it and um, you know make it into um, lime and then add water and it becomes something else and it just goes around in the circle and unfortunately you know co2 is a is just a byproduct of that and, you know, of course, you need to heat it, but we're figuring out ways where we can heat things without um, so much carbon dioxide. But it does recapture it. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating thing. I've always, I have this, like, interest in materials and their place in buildings and history. And, um, and I think that we, we kind of make certain things boogeymen that maybe we should be a little more realistic about. <laughs> Right. It's about a sunk investment and being able to kind of draw on what's already there. Um, I, I was struck by the same point that was almost made at the um, USA Pavilion this year in Venice about plastics. You know, they they looked at, you know, the fact that we create so much waste with consumer plastics. And they got about halfway there in making the argument that I really wanted to see go further, which was that we should be actively trying to construct buildings with plastics and making sure that there is adaptability to reuse rather than focusing all of our energy on, you know, consumer products. It's not like all plastics bad. It's just we're, we're using them in the wrong way. I sort of feel like that's the same story with concrete. You know, it's like we're, we're starting all this new construction when we could be looking at adaptive reuse. Yeah. Well, I certainly want to get into like some of the other, I mean, types of buildings that should be adapted. But can you start by telling us a bit about the Cheech and sort of the, the, the various environmental issues and remediation issues you dealt with there to capture this carbon? And I should note, I love the fact that it is nicknamed the Cheech because it will host the, the personal collection of Cheech Marin, of Cheech and Chong, like a world-class collector of Chicano art. I did not know. Yeah. It's a fascinating long arc of a story. So the... Um, yeah, Riverside, California was really famous for its like Spanish colonial and colonial revival architecture. And in the 1960s, they decided to you know have this urban renewal project and tear down their Carnegie Library, very nice little kind of Spanish revival Carnegie Library, and build um, you know a, a very modern. Um, new library kind of right smack in the middle of a row of all these um, big Spanish colonial uh, buildings, including the Mission Inn, which is uh, in and of itself a kind of a special place. And uh, in doing so, they really kind of changed the pattern of urban development in Riverside. It was kind of this big, bold, brash move. And I love the fact that they really realized that the library wasn't serving the needs of the community anymore. And, you know, over 10 years ago, we, we got involved a little bit and in just kind of looking at 
um, how the, li you know, the library was trying to be modernized and it really wasn't kind of working with the character of the, of the building and it just required so much change that it became a challenge. So um, it, was, it was kind of a, the city manager there was a bit of a genius and he uh, cheated, uh, exhibited part of his collection at the Riverside Art Museum, which is the parent organization. And it was the, by far and away the biggest uh, show they had ever had. And the city manager was like, well, we've got this old old library that we don't know what to do with. We want to build a new one. What if we offer it up to the to the Cheech? And it's um, it was kind of perfect for that. It doesn't have a lot of windows. But we didn't want to add a lot of windows because of the structural retrofit would be a challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, thinking about how to... Uh, you know, put in a new use, which is really compatible. Like people love libraries, there's a good feeling about libraries. It's a, you know, library is a place where they tell all these stories. And, you know, what Cheech was really hoping to do with his collection was tell this American story of, you know, um, uh, Latino and Chicano uh, descendants who are doing art in America. And it was kind of the perfect fit. It was kind of easy to do. We did it on a, a pretty shoestring budget. Um, but just kind of the power of the idea, the personality, and the vision of uh, the city was perfect for that. And um, so the the idea of, it really is the idea of we didn't have to tear things down in order to do it. So that's how we saved the carbon. That was It wasn't like we uh, invested. It was just that pre-investment. We just continued on to a, to a new use that was really compatible with what was there before. And it's been really successful. It's been an economic driver, uh, bringing people into the city. They've activated kind of the urban environment because they're, uh, they're very good at programming. Uh, RAM is the uh, Riverside Art Museum. is uh, like the little engine that could. They just won a Museum of the Year award. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Very interesting. Well, this is the part where I have to ask the de-rigueur question for anybody, anybody we have on the show who's going to talk about, you know, adaptation of historic structures, which is, John, what are we going to do with all the office towers, particularly in the cores of historic skyscraper cities? Are you working on this? Thoughts on this? Is it impossible? Can it be done? We are working on it, and I think it, it, it can be done. It's, it's interesting because I think um, you, you think about, like we're, I'm in a, a 1920s office building, right? And if you look at them, like the floor plates are kind of shaped like E's or H's. They have light courts. They were really thought of. You know, there's always this rule of thumb is like light can penetrate into the building, you know, one and a half times the head height of the windows, right? And if you start to look at those floor plates, that's how they're organized. You know, they go in halfway, there's a corridor, and then that's, that's how the, the buildings work. And the transition to these modern... Um, you know, modernism and larger floor plate, larger floor plates, lower ceiling heights, really um, conditioned becomes challenging. You know, for conversion. So we're looking at uh, ways that we can do like live work. So you have the living out by the windows, and maybe you have work uh, in towards the core of a of a building. Uh, we're looking at ways to change fenestration. Um, how do you get kind of proper egress? Uh, there are lots, uh, particularly L.A. was um, was uh, really spearheading an adaptive reuse ordinance. So they were looking at, again, these um, 1920s buildings. 
and figuring out how to convert those and now there's a pivot to look at what are the best buildings um, to change from uh, office to residential use and it really does have to you have to start with these kind of how's the floor plan laid out is it if it's too square it can be a, a challenge and then you know can we carve them up that was one of the things of the cheech is we you know we cut a hole in the second floor to get kind of space and light and connection so maybe some of these are going to need light cords cut into them um, to get that light down further but we do see kind of the you know the office parks are um, being converted to and those have that you know they're not quite as square and big so they are a little bit easier to to convert but um, I think it's doable there are lots of cases um, we did a 1960s office building this this was uh, when I was a different firm but um, on Wilshire and Western and uh, we did have to take out the windows and create like interior balconies it was just kind of a flat skin much like the building that's behind me um, but we were able to you know create these little balcony internal balconies and, and make it work even though it was a pretty boxy floor plate Interesting. Well, that was my next question, which is, you know, all this attention gets paid to, like, you know, the cores of great American cities, but, like, obviously suburban office parks strikes me as, like, the least renewable resource of American urbanism. But right. is, is that true? Have you done anything with those? Or, like, what's your favorite typology you think has, like, the most potential for, you know, large-scale reuse? Well, they all, they all have potential. I mean, I like high-rises and just kind of it's been part of my architectural career for a long time. Um, but I think, you know, the transit-oriented development makes a lot of sense i think the the obviously the infrastructure where we don't necessarily need to rely on the cars too much is uh, probably the place to start um but i think i do think i mean the high the high-rise building i think is the is obviously a, a good investment particularly these i like these 1920s buildings but um which there are a ton of them empty right now, in, on the West Coast at least, um, which do make for uh, pretty good housing. As kind of a fun fact, I, uh, my first apartment in Los Angeles was one block away from Wilshire and Western, so I, I know the building you're talking about. Yeah, it is. It is. I do think that the 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 stuff that was built in the age of air conditioning and constant, you know. Uh, a closed envelope and low ceilings, you know, we're, they're having a hard time finding office tenants for these buildings, let alone, I mean, they present some difficulties for, for residential conversion as well, right? Because of the deep floor plates that you mentioned. I mean, it's hard to imagine something like, you know, the Willis Tower here in Chicago, A, being built at all for one office client, but B, being converted into residential because it's like a full block building. Um, so, I think that's going to continue to be something of a challenge, but I'm glad that people are taking it on. Yeah, I think the idea of vertical mixed use is is very intriguing. Um, I don't know if I'd want to work in an office with no windows, but um, you know, I do think that ideas like that, or maybe it's you know, who knows, maybe the inside's a computer data storage, but it allows for the the perimeter to be reused. My dad actually lived for a couple years in the Hancock building, so they have condos in that building so, um, from the get-go. Yeah, one of the, the first and most successful mixed-use buildings, most-used high-rise anyway. Uh, 
so you're so a lot of the work I'm looking at the portfolio now of of Page and Turnbull, and most of it seems to be restoring pre-war California buildings like the Ferry Building, the Greek Theater. So this turn into mid-century concrete, did that happen with your arrival or was it some kind of philosophical decision or the market or, or what drove that? I, I think it was just, it was happening. Um, you know, there's a, for historic buildings, the National Register has this 50 year uh, age requirement that exists. So that, you know, that's 1970s now. So it's just kind of a sliding scale. So the thought of how do we preserve um, you know, lots of different eras of 50s and 60s buildings has been um, around for a while. And um, I think it's just an evolution of the practice. And there's, I think there's more appreciation for um, yeah, thought behind historic preservation. And it's kind of uh, gone beyond um, just, you know, these kind of nice... Um, Beaux Arts buildings. We're really seeing like a shift in 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 historic preservation. A lot of it was kind of the social unrest and, and thinking about um, intangible heritage. So maybe it's um, we've been doing a lot of what we call historic contexts, which are kind of studies of place and how they change and what may be historic. And we're looking at ethnographic ones, so African-American historic context, uh, Asian-American Pacific Islander historic context. And for a long time, that I, the, the ownership of property was challenging for either, you know, straight out outlawed in some of the Asian-American groups to challenging for financial reasons and redlining and those sorts of things. So how do you think about um, the heritage that exists and making sure there's an opportunity to be interpreted, to continue to thrive, where there necess isn't necessarily a strong built environment piece to that. So it's, a, it's kind of a revolution in how we're thinking about places. I wonder if a lot, I mean, one thing that sort of has happened, um, thinking about the, the nexus of ethnographics and identifying the movement of a particular group through an urban area uh, with 19th century architecture certainly has happened in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, for example, with the, the Tenement Museum. That's a very clear, you know, exploration architecturally and ethnographically of a living condition that was every day uh, for a lot of people. I wonder if we're going to see an evolution to I don't know what what will be the sort of banal everyday uh, Ralph's supermarket from the 1960s that are now all Vietnamese markets in in, in Orange County, for example. I mean, it could be interesting. I mean, will will the buildings hold the same architectural value because uh, because of what happened there, or because of uh, how they represented um, an ethnographic condition, or because a lot of those were built with no thought to the architecture. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing about it. Anti-history. I mean, that's, right. that's sort of modernism even itself. Even the good modernism is sort of about erasing history and starting over. Yeah. So, but I think that's, you know, the things aren't just historic for design and architecture, right? They can be um, associated with patterns of history. They can be associated with individuals. So we're not always... When we're doing our work, we're not always talking about kind of great architecture. We're talking about 
places and stories. And I think that's the that's like the grocery store example is the thing that's um, historic or you know the heritage is the business, the community, and you know maybe it's not necessarily preserving the supermarket but making sure the business is able to thrive and kind of community centers continue to have a place where they can operate and and be um so that's the shift i mean it's kind of it's a shift so it's still about place but it's not so much about buildings see that's really interesting and i'm wondering how that affects your uh your teaching career uh you're at usc and you have architecture is it architecture studios or a seminar courses? I, I, I do a graduate course on the intersection of sustainability and historic preservation. So that's the. So I'm wondering if if you have to restrain the the students who want to do something spectacular because architecture students usually do, uh, and when working within an envelope of a say a. a Nineteenth century building, mm. you have a lot to, to build off of in terms of ornamentation and right. things that you need to preserve in order to keep the facade together. But when you start to get into these nineteen sixties and seventies buildings, it's like any kind of change you make to it is such a huge tectonic change. I'm just wondering if that has have you seen that having implications in the the studio work that you've seen at, at USC? Um. I think so. I mean, the, my courses are very, in, my course in particular is very inter, interdisciplinary. I get, uh, you know, USC has um, a landscape uh, um, degree, a heritage conservation degree, a building science degree within the, their masters of architecture. So I get kind of, I tend to get an equal mix of people from those, but I also get people from urban planning and real estate, which are in different schools, and engineering. So it's kind of a, it's a nice, mix because it's not just architects and you can kind of play things off of each other but I do think it's you know I always try to emphasize what makes this place historic you know what is the driver and what are the features that we want to um, hold on to and my, my, my thing that I always tell students and I tell clients is you know historic preservation really isn't about the past it's about the future like you're making decisions about, you know, what to celebrate, what to keep, what's important. And each generation that reframes, you know, people think about things very different. Like, you know, nobody was talking about colonialism and the problems with that, you know, 30 years ago. But we do talk about it a lot now. Um, so, you know, how do we define those things? And how do we, you know, it's always about this, you know, how do we kind of respect the past? How do we provide for the present and allow for the future and that's the you know that's kind of a basic definition of sustainability but it's also a basic definition of historic preservation so there's a lot of interface and that's where things can get interesting are you know is the facade that important can we just can we re- make it look the same with higher performing materials um, so it's always these kind of questions and we try to work through a process okay here's the features that we want to keep or the spaces the spatial relationships we want to preserve can we do it with what's there if not you know can what how do we change it so it looks basically it looks the same but performs better and what are the trade-offs you're always always talking about trade-offs and compromise and historic projects 
which is kind of what makes it fun because it can't you can't do it in a vacuum. Yeah. Well, since you invoke sustainability again, going back to high rises, so I'm I'm, I'm in Montreal at the moment, but my heart is in New York. And, um, and New York, in that context, has Local Law 97, which is the sort of binding tax on carbon emissions of buildings, which of course, uh, you know, which now various interest groups are trying to water down. But I'm curious your thoughts on, I guess, sort of like what the what the what the future is for a lot of historic high rises in New York, for example, and potentially in Los Angeles and beyond, as, as we might see other places adopt those laws. Um, you know, to make those numbers pencil out. So, for as an example, this may have changed because this was several years ago, but I do remember. Shortly after Johnson Controls did a much heralded retrofit of the Empire State Building, right. uh, you know there was like a, a, a zero to one hundred analysis of the sustainability of other iconic New York buildings, and like on a scale of zero to one hundred, like the Seagram's Building was like six. Like it was insane the kind of energy loss of Mises' iconic design. And um, I, I'm curious, you know, when you sit down or like or you look at the sustainability aspects of this, like do you think these kinds of laws might apply enough financial pressure to justify some of the expensive retrofits? And like how do you sort of see that factor into your design decisions when you're doing with again, historic structures um, and the and the very costly renovations it might require to make them greener? Right. I, well, I think the the Empire State Building is a great case, and I, I always like the they just came up with kind of three steps, right? You reduce demand, you buy efficient technology. And you um, provide controllability, and I always we use that in our projects all the time. And we, but our, we really put an emphasis on how do we reduce the demand. And I think that building, like the Seagram's building, that's hard to do when it's a big glass box. Um, I think the that's another thing about the twenties buildings, it's like they didn't have air conditioning. You know, some of these older ones didn't even have electric lighting, so they're like the environmental responsiveness of the buildings are. Uh, much more tuned, right? They 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 understood how to keep a building comfortable without um, needing a bunch of systems to to put it in place. So that shift does become really. I think it's really challenging. Um, but then it becomes how do we? I think the same kind of process would apply. And you know, how do we create a curtain wall that's much more energy efficient? How do we uh, you know get these systems in place that are efficient? And then I think the flip side is, you know, the, the ultimate piece is how do we, you know, can we do on-site generation to offset um, a lot of these losses? And that, that ultimately will be uh, part of the equation. So it's about balancing. But I think until you start measuring, yeah, measuring these things and putting them out there publicly, you know, nothing's going to change. So I do think the reporting and, and public component of it is a is a big deal and i do think it will i do think it will um be a driver i mean no one had heard of lead you know 25 years ago and all of a sudden it's a virtual requirement uh despite its obvious flaws as a checklist kind of system but i mean nobody was even thinking about these things prior to that yeah, I think that gave a really good organizational structure. I I had a talk, you know, the lead lead became codified in California in particular, where like cities were like, we want to we want to do this green building thing. It's not in the code, so we're just going to write in our municipal code that any building above this size is going to have to meet this lead level. So it shifted from this um, kind of incentive based. Uh, program to a codified program and eventually we got our green building code which is very similar to to older versions of lead in california but again pushing the envelope so i think kind of looking at living building challenge and architecture 2030 is 
those good measures I think is important. Okay, as a U of I grad, you must have some appreciation for Walter Netsch. Yep. But you're uh, uh, died in the wool Californian now. So in an epic battle of concrete wills, who would win, Netsch or William Ferreira? <laughs> uh, I think I think if you're judging on individual buildings, I think the Air Force Academy Chapel would probably win. But if you're judging on body of work, I think Pereira would win. I wanted to give a shout out to Max Abramowitz, who had a, a few nice buildings, uh, particularly in, in uh, Urbana-Champaign. So he's uh, also a grad. Um, so I think uh, I wanted to not leave him out. <clears throat> I really hope that they don't mess up the renovation of the Boston City Hall, for example. I know they're demolishing the parking garage or something, and they keep having to stop the train uh, that goes underneath it. I, I just hope they don't mess it up. It's concrete's a challenge um, because of the way it ages, right? And the and the interplay between the steel and and uh, the concrete material and the need to uh, control corrosion of the steel and its expansive properties. So we spend a lot of time fixing uh, uh, cracked concrete because of rusty rusty rebar. I mean, I do kind of wonder if, you know, this all this investment in sort of, uh, you know, smart concrete, uh, fibrous, uh, fibrous inputs, um, other types of uh, generative technologies. Uh, do you feel like that's getting a getting some headway? Because it all it almost seems like the biggest problem. If you look back at concrete from the Roman era, well, the fact that we can look back to it and it's still there probably tells us that they were doing something right. And what they definitely didn't do was incorporate rebar. They didn't have steel. And the interface of concrete with those other materials, with water getting in between and forcing cracks and causing concrete cancer and all those kinds of things, you know, didn't exist in those times. Do you think that the, the material in, uh, invention that we're going, going through right now, this sort of period of wanting to do 3D printing, et cetera, will create a, a purer kind of concrete that will eventually... Uh, obviate a lot of these problems. Uh, I do. I think. It, I think there'll be. There's kind of materials revolutions going on all the time, um, and I think, like I mentioned, carbon fiber. Like we do a lot of carbon fiber wrapping of concrete as a as a as a um, way of upgrade. Um, so I do think the technology will continue to improve, but as, as long as you're in this. You know, as long as you're kind of using calcium, you know, you're um, using calcium carbonate, taking sandstone and converting it into lime, you're going to have CO2 issues. It's, 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 that's kind of the fundamental chemical process that exists. So I do think that they'll, they'll you need to, that, that binding agent that uh, cement acts as, you know, we'll probably need some thought about how we replace that. And I like the idea. I haven't really thought too much about the idea of how plastics may play a role and like recycled plastics may play a role. But we've been using, you know, fiberglass and as a reinforcing in concrete for a long time. It's kind of a common thing now. That's true. GFRC is pretty commonly used. Yep. Although, um, is that a load? I don't know if that's a load bearing material. Um, no, but you like a, like, in topping like exterior topping slabs and even in concrete mixes you may put a little um uh, fiberglass to control cracking 
actually that was you know back when I was in graduate school at U of I I was on a National Science Foundation we were trying to figure out is there a way to create self-healing concrete and we were looking at um, putting you know hollow uh, hollow fibrous tubes into the concrete when they got stretched they would release like epoxies or binding agents to to heal the concrete and as the is the initial thing but that 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 has progressed and is still you know a thought for particularly for highways and bridges so another sort of uh, another sort of question about the 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 Cheech Museum. Did you get to meet Cheech Marin, and uh, was he interesting to work with? Uh, he was great. He's he's such a he didn't really actually want to know too much of the details. He just really liked to stick to the big picture. But he's just um, he's a great guy. He's just very positive. Um, really wanted to tell that story. Like it was like he had been collecting this his whole life. Um, he always talks about being a collect, like he's a collector. Like when he was a kid, he collected baseball cards and bottle caps and that sort of thing. And then and when he started having a little bit of money, he just started collecting. And over time, it became more and more. And he really started to appreciate it. And um, yeah, but to tell it, because he really, the, I love, you know, his thing is Chicano art is American art and it tells an American story. And then I really appreciate that. You know, my in laws are Polish and. There's a lot of similarities in there. But again, this idea of kind of, you know, ethnic groups and, and um, you know, telling kind of stories of heritage and, and history uh, really was able to come to life at the Cheech um, in a way that never had before. So it's, it's one of those projects where, you know, we went to the opening, people are literally weeping in joy because of the opportunity to have this um, be available to the public. Well, I really, I really want to thank you, John, for spending the time with us. Uh, this has been uh, illuminating, and uh, I think I have a lot more uh, buildings to see on my historic preservation agenda now. Um, one, one thing I wanted to, another U of I shout out is, you know, the idea of embodied energy really came out of the University of Illinois too. So, um, in the late seventies, so let's say. Uh, um, they had a research grant, so the whole thing kind of, uh, the whole thought process there is, has champagne urbana roots. Who, who was the, the, the major proponent there, or the, the champion on campus? Booze, Booze Hazelton, I think, was um, one of the firms that was involved with it. But um, yeah, they had a they had a kind of a two-part research grant, and half of it was in Urbana-Champagne. So don't let anybody knock Illinois. That's what we take away from That's today. Right. That's right. That's right. The future is made in the basement underneath the cornfield. That's right. In hell, a hell. concrete bunker. Hell uh, 9002. Right? So. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so we've, we've just connected. Oh, my gosh. We've just connected. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't do that. And Dave's not here. That's in right. The same episode. <laughs> Voila. Outstanding. <laughs> Have a great one, John. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye.